it's hard to explain, but if someone were to give me the option of going to another major city and saying, hey, we're going to put you in a nice, big old fancy house. You're going to have a nice, big old church in the suburbs. You're going to live a nice, peaceful life. I probably would like be yuck. I wouldn't want to do it. And I, But if they said to me, we're going to take you to the hood and we're going to set you up, I probably would jump at that in a second because that's just, I can't explain it. That's what I'm gifted to do. I know that's what I'm gifted to do. Did it scare you? Every day. Yeah. <laughs> Every day I'm scared. Welcome to Stay and Fight, a podcast about extraordinary Illinoisans who have made profound impacts in their community and who, despite all the issues in this state, are dedicated to staying here and fighting for its future. I'm Matt Paprocki, president of the Illinois Policy Institute. And on today's episode, we bring you Pastor Corey Brooks, You heard Pastor Brooks say that he's scared because he built his New Beginnings Church in Woodlawn, the third most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago at that time. But now, between his church and Project Hood, his violence reduction and economic empowerment ministry, they've helped the neighborhood drop to the 13th most dangerous one. And Pastor Brooks' life-saving work is far from over. Let's get started. Uh, Pastor, let's uh, let's start from the beginning here. Yes. Where'd you grow up? Tell me about your family, your parents, right. what that was like. So I grew up, I was born in a little town called Kenton, Tennessee. It's about uh, 60 miles outside of Memphis. And it's actually only known for one thing, white squirrels. I tell everybody, <laughs> I tell everybody, I did not even know that squirrels existed of a different color until I was nine years old when we moved to Muncie, Indiana. But all that time, I thought squirrels were white. And I remember in the night, I was uh, nine years old, and I got into a fight with a kid because he was trying to argue with me about the color of squirrels. What was, uh, tell me about what your parents did. What was, what were your parents like? I was a single parent household. My mom had me when she was 19. My real dad was really not in my life at all. He's gone. He's passed away now, but we didn't have a a relationship that much. Um, My mother raised me and she got married to my stepfather who still alive and doing well. My mother has passed away some months ago. I'm sorry to hear yeah, that. Yeah, uh, of cancer. Great mom, though, so I, 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 I say that with great joy. So she always had a, um, a love for God, always raised us in church. I learned early on that you're not the victim of your mistakes just from seeing how she navigated life and handled the situation and was a wonderful woman. She not only loved the Lord and loved the church, she loved people. She worked with um, adults with autism, teaching them how to live on their own and things like that. And I I joke all the time when I tell people about my household, I cannot remember a a day at our house when it was not someone different at dinner. Growing up, it was always some different person who had autism who was at our house. And so I think that love for people and that compassion for people was nurtured early on by my mom. So I knew that I should be preaching at the age of 14. And you had that calling early. I had the calling early. I knew at 14, I felt I'm gonna, I, I should be a preacher, but I despised preachers. Uh, and I don't know if it was because of my thought about them or 
I just had negative opinions about preachers. I did not at all want to be a preacher. So I did everything, and I do mean everything, that a 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kid could do as far away from church as I could possibly be. But here's what's so crazy. Um, I would go and hang out and do stupid stuff and tell my mom, hey, I'm staying all night over Johnny's on Saturday night. And she would say, you can stay all night if you want to, even though I was out partying or whatever. Have your behind at church at 9 a.m. So no matter what I did all my life, I had to be at church at 9 a.m. on Sunday. So I was very rebellious, but that seed constantly being planted eventually started to grow. It was there. It was there. Yeah. Uh, there's a parable about this, yeah. right? As yeah. far as like where it gets planted. For sure. Once you start tilling that soil, exactly. it That's starts working out all right. Somebody poured a little water on it and a little sunshine started to get on it and started to grow. At 26, I got called to pastor a church in Chicago, real traditional Baptist church called West Point Baptist Church. And it was in the middle of the hood on 35th and Cottage Grove. So it was apartment projects all around it. But the church was uniquely different. They had a lot of doctors, attorneys, lawyers, teachers. It was kind of like a, a higher income church. And I just didn't fit because I was trying to get everybody from the neighborhood and they were like, no, we don't want them in our church. And so I decided, you know, I don't want to fight people about that. So I said, I'm going to resign from this position and I'm going to find the worst neighborhood in Chicago and I'm going to start a church there. And that's what we did. We started New Beginnings Church and uh, and that's how we started. We wanted to be in the one of the worst places in Chicago. Woodlawn. Mm-hmm. Why did you why did you mark off Woodlawn? Why was that? So open it? when we started the church, we, we, we wanted to get in Woodlawn, but we couldn't find any place. So we uh, ended up on 35th in a school called Doolittle. And we had church in, in this school in this in this um in this in their theater. Um but we were always looking in Woodlawn. And the reason why we were looking in Woodlawn is because I had done research and I had discovered that Woodlawn was one of the original areas where the gangs started. So I figured I wanted to be in a place that I, that is known to be rough because I really feel like even to this day that God has given me a special gift to reach those type of individuals to help them transform their lives. So I always wanted to get the wood line. And when the time came after about three years, our the church had grown tremendously and we had some funds that we could really start trying to purchase some buildings. Then we went all out and then we finally found a, a facility, an old beat up skating rink, old bowling alley. It was it was horrible. It was a mess. Uh, kids used to have rave parties there. The white kids from the suburbs were coming in with the inner city kids and they would have these crazy parties at this building. So by the time we got the building, it was graffiti everywhere. It was It was shut down, broken windows. We were able to secure that space and ultimately rehab it, and, and now it's a, a beautiful facility. And this is New Beginnings Church. New right? Beginnings Church. What? Where do you think this calling came from? Because coming from small town Tennessee, then going over to Muncie, 
you know, that's not necessarily what I think of as the hotbed of gang activity. Exactly. What what made you lean in? You know, most people see gang activity, they run the opposite direction. You ran into it. Yeah. You know, um, people ask me all the time that question. How, how did you get so involved in wanting to work with gangs? And why do you feel that's your calling? And I tell people that I don't know what it is with God that he picks these preachers and he gives them a certain calling. Some guys want to go to third world countries and some people want to go to rural areas in America. Well, for whatever reason, I've always had that desire to be in a city and do ministry work in a city. And so when I got the opportunity to come to Chicago, I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to give it my all. And those four years that I spent at the church, before we started New Beginnings, gave me an opportunity to learn the landscape, to learn about neighborhoods and what was going on. And the more I did that, the more I felt a yearning to want to help, especially young black men who were in these gangs. And maybe some of it was because for nine years, here I am with my single mom struggling, trying to, you know, just live life. So I understand the dynamic of being with a single mother, but I also understand the dynamic of having the absence of a really strong family around. And I just felt called to it. And even to this day, it's hard to explain, but if someone were to give me the option of going to another major city and saying, hey, we're gonna put you in a nice, big old fancy house. You're gonna have a nice big old church in the suburbs. You're gonna live a nice peaceful life. I probably would like be a yuck. I wouldn't wanna do it. And I, But if they said to me, we're gonna take you to the hood and we're gonna set you up, I probably would jump at that in a second because that's just, I can't explain it. That's what I'm gifted to do. I know that's what I'm gifted to do. Did it scare you? Every day. Yeah. <laughs> Every day I'm scared. Uh, I, there's there's the there's degrees of fear. Uh, some days I operate in more fear than others, but there have been so many instances where um, something just could have gone left and really been really bad. And I can name you all, all kinds of stories, but... God gave me grace and favor in the midst of those times. And so I just believe God will protect me. I probably worry more about my son, my youngest son. How old is he? He's 20. And so he's in, he's at Morehouse, but every time he comes home, you know, his friends are from the neighborhood. And so, you know, that it just carries a lot of risk. And so I had to probably for all my children, that probably has been my biggest fear, just worrying about them when they were out with their friends. He's the last one now. And, um, but even to this day, I still like cringe when he say I'm going out and I'll be back. And I'm like, uh, just while he's out, it just, it terrifies me. And because of these trying realities, the church wasn't enough for Pastor Brooks. So he launched Project Hood, which stands for Helping Others Obtain Destiny. And they do pretty much everything you can imagine to help individuals break the cycles of poverty, violence, and incarceration on the South Side. They've helped the youth who have been involved with the court system to discover the power of choice. 
They've helped formerly incarcerated folks with construction training and job placement. They provide entrepreneurship courses, summer camp, the world's largest baby shower for single moms, and even conflict mediation among gangs. All of this has helped Woodlawn drop from the third most violent neighborhood in Chicago to the 15th. And it was inspired by this roof calling that Pastor Brooks has become famous for. So Project Hood started because across the street from our church and where we are now, there was a, a, a motel that was riddled with all kind of violence and all kind of uh behaviors that we thought were not good for our community, like sex trafficking, drugs, gangs, all of them were using this motel. And our church wanted to do something about it, especially after one Sunday, a man was beaten at the motel. They stripped him naked. Our church is jammed packed. And this guy runs in bleeding butt naked because they had beat him and he didn't have anywhere else to go. He was so afraid for his life. And incidents like that caused us to say, we're gonna take this motel on, we're gonna get rid of it. So we started protesting the motel every Friday and Saturday night from 7 p.m. to like 2 a.m. in the morning. We would record license plates, acting like we were gonna turn them in and things like that. And then finally, after we slowed this traffic down, slowed the business down, I decided I really believe that God called me to go up on the roof of that motel and put a tent on it and stay there and don't come down until I raise enough money to purchase the motel and tear it down. So I went up on the, I, I went up on the roof of his motel on 2011 on November 20th. And I tell people on the third day at that time, Mayor Rahm Emanuel called me and anybody who knows the mayor knows he has a very potty mouth. He called me and he had some very choice words to say because he was afraid that I was going to have other people, you know, come up with the idea to go up on the roof of the motel. And and, and uh, he didn't want that happening in his city and he made it be known. So he threatened to come and get me and have me taken down. But I tell people he made a mistake because he told me what time he was going to send the police and the fire department at three o'clock. So at three o'clock, I made sure that I had at least a thousand people out there <laughs> protesting <laughs> so they couldn't get me down. He finally yielded and said, OK, at least protect. We're going to make sure you're safe up there. So they sent the fire department. They made us build some a deck around it and all of that. And I ended up staying up there. It took me 94 days to raise at that time. $450,000. Tyler Perry gave us the last $100,000 we needed. And then Marty Ozinga from Ozinga Concrete gave us another $100,000 to tear it down. So in 94 days, we raised $550,000, $450,000 to buy the motel, and then another hundred to tear it down. What? So what? What do the people who own this hotel think of this? They were mad. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Patel Group. Look them up. The Patel Group. They're, they're uh, uh, a group of hotel owners across the country. And allegedly, some of them own some seedy hotels all across the country. So they were very mad. I was. I will tell you this story. Ed Vidoliak was uh, <clears throat> an alderman here in Chicago. Ed Vidoliak brought some individuals to me to threaten me about not taking on the hotel. Yes. 
Ever Doliak, who 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 got convicted of some crimes. I think he's doing some time here in Illinois. But uh, so yeah, so that's yeah. <laughs> I it's such a funny concept that like you there's a seedy hotel and you got politicians who are trying to strong arm you to yes. say, hey, get out of the way here. Strong strong army and uh, but you know. The good thing is that I had been in the hood for so long by that time, I couldn't be scared. Yeah, that was the least of your concerns. A politician. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's your nine-year-old son think? Because he had to been nine at the time, right? He goes, hey, hey, pops, have fun on the rooftop. You know, my kids did. Let me see. So my kids <laughs> and my wife, they all were like, this is crazy. But we've always done steps of faith to do things like getting our building. We did some some real faithful things to get the building. We've always been a family to say, okay, we, our whole family, we believe God put us in that neighborhood. My oldest son, Desi, who runs our operations, the president of Project Hood, you know, he could be, he was, he was overseeing Burger Kings for the Eastern New York, Buffalo and Syracuse. And he could easily be doing a, some other stuff. But because he feels led to be in our neighborhood, he works for us. He left all of that to work with us because so they understand that. And uh, but they still thought it was crazy. They, they still do think it's crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what months were you doing this in? November the 20th to February 24th. Oh, my yeah. gosh. In the winter. Yeah. When you don't even want to go outside. No. And uh, I tell everyone that. uh you know, it was one of the best winters, though, in Chicago history. So I believe, this is just my own personal belief, I believe that God saw this black crazy preacher and knew that he was a conservative Republican. He was going to need all the help that he can get. <laughs> and, he, and he controlled the weather just for me. I believe that. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> Except for once we go on and we talk about yes. all the other times you... Yeah, yeah. Once we go on, it's a little different. You have any dark moments up there when you said, "Oh man, yes." Uh, You know, when you're trying to accomplish something in life, and it doesn't happen immediately, doubt can creep in, frustration can creep in. Motivating yourself is sometimes can be one of the most difficult things to do, and. While I was up there, I realized during the daytime, I would be okay. People are coming, people are visiting. And because I hadn't said anything about my politics, they still don't even know that I'm a conservative Republican. So Jesse Jackson came, Al Sharpton came. There's a picture uh, I wish I could show you of Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Hermine Hardiman, James Meeks, and they're on both sides and I'm sitting in a chair and they're talking and the picture of me if you could see the look on my face and the look and so brian he put a caption by this picture that said if they only knew i was a black conservative (laughs) if they only knew and uh so so but during the day people would come and visit um at that time also the governor came to visit the rooftop the mayor of detroit at that time Kwame Kilpatrick, I think he had just gotten sentenced or released. I couldn't remember, but he was no longer the mayor, but the former mayor of Detroit. He came to the roof. Everybody was coming to the roof uh, at that time. But at nighttime, 
when no one was there and it's just me and the Lord, it was a different story. I would get so depressed. Yeah. There was a gentleman at that time who named Andre Colbert, rest in peace. He served every single day and he doesn't get mentioned in, uh, enough in my story and I need to do a better job. But Andre Colbert was a gang guy straight out of the gang. He was not just a guy out of the gang, but he was one of the big chiefs in the gang. So he had a lot of, lot of influence. But he had totally changed his life and was so whatever he was decided if he's going to lead the gang, he was going to be right there by me every step of the way. So he would work construction and then he would um, serve at the church faithfully every single day. And at night for 93 nights, he would sleep in his car and do security for 93 nights. And um, I mentioned him because he was just recently shot and killed like two years ago. And he was moving, uh, decided to take a nap in his car. Somebody tried to carjack him and he wouldn't, you know, he's one of those types of guys. He wasn't going to go and they, they shot him. So, but um, guys like that have been a part of my story and my existence all along the way. And for some reason, they feel drawn to me and I feel drawn to them. So, Do you have any, so you have New Beginnings Church, you know, Project Hood, obviously going through the motel. What are some of the favorite stories on the successes that you've seen, you know, yeah. early years sure. being being the pastor and in, in your, your congregation? You know, so many success stories. Um, one that sticks out in my mind right off the top is uh, there's a guy who works for us to this day. His name is Larry Wells. We call him Maine because everybody in our neighborhood has a nickname. So his name is Maine. And um, he works for our church. But before that, he ended up marrying one of the, the the ladies from our church. So she brings him to church. He just had gotten released from jail where he had, where he is, he held, I believe he holds the record for the longest stay in Cook County jail without a trial. I think he was there for nine years before he finally was convicted. He took a plea. They gave him 10 years. He had to serve six more months, and then he let him out for time served. Anyway, he That's gets not a good record. To not have. a good work. Yeah, not a good record to have. But he gets out of jail, and he comes to our church. And the first Sunday he's there, he walks. He decides he's going to join. We get this invitation for people to come and join the church. He walks down the aisle and he joins the church, and he's there. And all of a sudden, this other lady comes. And she comes down the aisle and she's hugging him and they're crying and they're, but it goes on for an exaggerated period of time. I'm like, okay, this is kind of extended. I don't know what's going on, but I didn't say anything. Afterwards, his wife is part of our finance team. She says, pastor, you just witnessed a miracle. And I was like, what happened? And she went on to tell me that Maine was responsible for the death of this lady's son. And that's why he was in jail. And she was whispering in his ear, I forgive you. I forgive you. And so there they were, both of them at our altar, broken. And when I 
found that out when she told me that I was so thankful because I felt like okay God I know without a shadow of a doubt this is why you put me in this neighborhood to heal broken hearts to to repair ruptured relationships to restore people's dignity and whenever sometimes I want to quit and throw in the towel I think about stories like that yeah that's unbelievable. Unbelievable, right? And they're both still faithful and in our church today. When you talk about, like, whenever I think about, like, faith and, like, you know, having faith in something, man, that's just not human, right? I mean, like, if you're yeah. that mother, if if you're if somebody kills your son, man, I, that's not a human thing to say, I'm going to hug is, this person. It's say. definitely not. It's definitely not. That's that's all faith. That's 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 a lot of forgiveness. You know, and I, I, like you said, I don't even know if I could muster up that much forgiveness. But to see her, that, that lady still faithful in our church and he's still faithful, that's what it's all about. Because that was such a good story. You got any others that come to your mind? Oh, I got plenty. I have story after story <laughs> yeah. after story. I'm trying to work on a book so I can get these stories in there. Oh, I but, love it. I love you it. You know, there's, there's, you know, we got a, a bunch of guys in our church who come out of jail, who come out of the federal system and come out of, jail time and we have these brothers one of them doesn't belong to our church but the other one does twin he was the largest drug dealer in the woodlawn area and his name is varney volker v-a-r-n-e-y volker v-o-k-e-r so if anyone wants to verify the story they can look him up and he has a twin brother called varma v-a-r-m-a-h they both end up going to jail and along with a lot of other guys who are now in our church, who all went to jail with them. But when Twin got out of jail, one of the guys that went to jail with him had been out for two years prior to him. And so he had been going to our church faithfully. His name is Al Mack. Uh, Al Mack tells him, listen, I want to take you to go meet someone. So Twin thinks that he's going to meet a drug connect to get back in the drug game. But Al brings him to me. And when Al brings him to me, I already know who he's bringing. I've already heard the story of Twin. I already know what he did to the neighborhood. So I know with these guys, you can't be soft. So I'm going to put on this facade like I'm just this tough pastor. So I tell Twin, I said, listen, you need to know there's a new sheriff in town and you're not allowed to sell any drugs in this neighborhood. But what you are allowed to do is come and be a part of us restoring the neighborhood. And he, he sits back, he says, well, who is this new sheriff? And I said, me. And I said, so you can take it or leave it. And he tells the story that he was getting ready, he says, I was getting ready to jump on this big fat guy in front of me <laughs> and give it to him. He said, but I, I he I decided I took him on a ride. I took him in the car. I said, hey, I want to, before you make your decision, what you want to do, I want to take you on a ride. And I took him through the neighborhood, people that he knew, and showed him all the people that he was responsible for messing up their families, damaging their lives seeing them still strung out on drugs. And when I saw him cry, I knew right then, okay. And when we got back to the church, he said, 
I don't know any other thing to do but sell drugs. Would you really help me for real? I said, if you promise you will not sell one bag of drugs ever again, I'm going to give you everything I got. And he made the promise and he's been with us ever since. He works for us too. He also has a, a, a car business. He loves exotic cars. So he he learned how to get his credit straight and watch some stuff on YouTube. And uh, he bought his first uh, Bentley and he, he does chauffeur stuff. And then he bought another car and another car. And then he drove one of them on for Uber. So he would work for us and then he would drive Uber. Plus he would rent his other cars out. And he's a, he's a great businessman. So he's doing really good now. And uh, whenever we have really hard cases and of guys who think that they can't do anything else, we, we tell twin, hey, we need you to take this guy for a few weeks and, and change his mindset. And He's he probably has the highest success rate of any of our guys. Pastor Brooks is shooting for an even higher success rate for the neighborhood, preparing to take Project Hood's work to the next level. They're working on raising $35 million to build a community center that can serve even more people with a trade school and sports and entertainment complex in the very spot where the motel used to be. And the pastor's plan to raise all that money? Get right back on the roof. Again. Last year was the 10th anniversary of him getting on the roof for the first time. So it was the perfect time to do it again. And this time, he camped on top of a replica of their hopeful community center. We did this interview in July, when he was still on the roof. But thankfully for Pastor Brooks, he's off it now. It was the 10th year anniversary. We said, how are we going to celebrate the rooftop experience? We need to get this capital campaign going. And so I said, you know what? It worked the first time. I'm going to do it again. So I told my family and uh, everybody was like, all right, let's try. Let's see what happens. Everybody was like, okay. And um, my kids are much older now. So they were really like, whatever. And, you know, my wife is doing her thing with real estate. She's like, whatever. So, um, we said, okay, I'm gonna do 100 days. Because I figured with the technology and and our influences, we've gained influence. In 100 days, maybe we can pull it off. You know, we're trying to raise $35 million. And we got to the 100 days, and I think we had raised $5 million. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm super thankful. You know, raising $5 million in 100 days is nothing to laugh at. That was awesome, that was great but we're still a long way from where we need to go. So we said, you know what? I'm just gonna tough this out and I'm gonna make a commitment to stay here until we raise the rest of the money. And so uh, we've been on the rooftop ever since. The only difference, the first 100 days, I did not go down at all for anything. Now uh, I will come down for great podcasts like Illinois Policy. Uh, I appreciate you. <laughs> stay appreciate and fight. You. Stay and fight. I will come down to stay and fight, and uh, or if we're going to go talk to a major donor. And on Sundays now, I go down to uh, to preach on Sundays. So yeah, yeah. You've done all this work. Now you're back on the roof I'm again. Back. I'm back on how the many, roof. How many days you've been back on the roof now? Man, 241 days. And out of those 241, 30 of those days, uh, I was with my mom. So 
well, almost 30 days. So I've actually been on the roof about 215 days, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how far along are you right now? So we're at 18.3 million at this present time. So we just, we got a really fantastic gift from uh, Ken Griffin, uh, $5 million. So we're really blessed by that and thankful for that. And um, yeah, that that's amazing. That's amazing. Who is the marketing guy who came up with the rooftop experience to celebrate the 10 year anniversary well, of the roof is the best euphemism I've ever yeah, heard yeah, it was, of staying yeah, on top it, of a city yeah, motel. It was, it was my idea, but Brian, <laughs> Brian on our team, uh, fine tuned it yeah. and uh, him and Dez came up with the having executives and CEOs from around the country come and stay and so uh, that first 100 days we've had executives and CEOs and college presidents come and stay a night from all across the country when am I get my invite when am I getting it's, it's available. hey listen I'm gonna tell you come now uh, while it's warm that's right I'll yeah, do hopefully I'll, be, I'll, be. hopefully I'll be down before winter comes that's right well I, I think hopefully <laughs> Hopefully I can come soon, soon so we can get you off that yes, roof. Please, I need you to. We should have we should have did the podcast from the roof. I know. Yeah. This was, actually they called me uh, earlier this week and they said, "Man, we should do it from the roof." I yeah, said, "Yeah, we should." Man, it's probably it. too late, but I go. I'd like to go back to the roof. Yeah, and, yeah, we should and check it out. Though yeah. we, we, we do, do something up there. We, we could do, do something up there. Pastor Brooks got off the roof at the end of October, after being up there for eleven months. He raised twenty million dollars of that thirty-five million dollar goal. If you would like to help build this important community center, make sure to visit projecthood.org. I'm going to bring you down. There's a question I wanted to ask you that's going to okay. be a tougher one, uh, but I want to ask you and then we'll pop back out. So you've had a lot of tough moments. You know I mean, like going and servicing inside of this community with gangs in underserved communities. Uh, what are some of the darkest moments? Do you think of any any memories? You've heard, I've, I've obviously oh, yeah. read enough stuff about you've done way too many funerals. You've had to That's bury exactly way too many say. people. Yeah. You know, there's two instances that, man, just stand out probably more so than anything. Well, three. One was um, a young man named, by the name of Jonathan. His six-month-old daughter, Janila. Uh, was shot and killed in his arms and Jonathan um, you know was in the gang lifestyle and all of that and I remember when his daughter was shot and killed and I remember telling him look I don't even know you and you don't know me but I'm gonna I'm gonna be with you until your life is changed I'm gonna Stay by your side. I'm going the ups and the downs. I basically told him, I'm gonna be like a father to you that you never had. And I know he really didn't believe it at that time, but now here we are, what, eight years later, nine years later, and Jonathan is full time on our on our staff working for the violence impact team. He doesn't participate in gang life anymore. He's working the. Um, become a better reader because he had a reading disability and uh you know things like that um really a dark moment turned into a ray of sunshine unbelievable but then there are those other moments 
where we've had individuals like Dakayla, a young 14-year-old girl, uh, one of my son's friends um, who grew up in our church, lived in the apartment complex, Parkway Gardens, next to our church, who got into a fight with some other girls. She got stabbed in her heart and died. That breaks your heart. We just recently had another young man. Uh, his nickname was, was we called him Capo, um, who was at a motel. He went to a party. And this is a kid who was not, who was going back and forth, trying to be good, trying to, you know, but he went to a party, ends up getting shot and killed. And so it's those moments of these young people that you're locked into, that you know well, you know their families, you know them, and then to see their lives be taken away, those are probably the darkest, hardest moments um, that I deal with as a pastor and being really ingrained in the community. What if, if you could have one prayer answered, what would it be? Oh, wow. Stop the shootings without a doubt. I think if, if we could stop the shootings, we could at least have some peaceful environments. You know, when, when you say stop the shootings and people, they don't, I don't think people really realize that you can actually, there's a complex of about 5,000 people next to our church, over 1,500 kids. And you would think on a beautiful sunny day, kids would be everywhere playing. You'd hear balls and jump ropes and bicycles. And if you ride by there right now on a beautiful sunny day, you're going to say, I thought they had 1,500 kids in this neighborhood. Where are they? They're, most of them are in the house. They don't want to come out because they're afraid of the violence. So getting rid of the shootings would change the atmosphere so much. And we have a summer camp and people ask me, why do you have a free summer camp? And I want to tell them the reason is I just want to see kids have fun. I remember growing up in the South, in Muncie, summer was the best days of my life. And to see kids in our area not have fun breaks my heart. So I try to make sure that we have water fights, that we have balloon fights, like we just had 10,000 balloons of water. Uh, you know, I try to make sure we take them camping. I try to make sure we do all the things that, that I really believe kids should experience. And that's one of the reasons why we're also building this center because I want kids to have opportunities, not just kids, but young adults as well, to have opportunities that they may not have gotten uh, while growing up. That's awesome. Sign me up as a sponsor for Absolutely. that. That's wonderful. So a, a young man who grew up in Tennessee, well, grew up in Indiana and Muncie, yeah. and then came and has lived his life here in, in Illinois. Why do you stay and fight for the future of this state? You know, I love I love the state. I love Chicago. I love, you know, the people. And the reason why I stay and fight is because I want the kids in our neighborhood to have every opportunity that everyone has in other neighborhoods. And I want our state to not be at the bottom. I want our state to be at the top. I want when people think about how government should be ran. I want it to be 
I want them to look at Illinois and say, that's an example. Right now, they look at Illinois and they say, don't do that. You know, the criminals are there. The corruption is there. And that, and that's not a good example. And so whatever, I, whatever I'm a part of, I always wanted to be the best. So I feel that way about our state. I feel that way about our city. I feel that way about our neighborhood. I feel that way about my church. And so I'm going to stay and fight. I'm not going anywhere. And it's, it's worth fighting for. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to have you along with us because you, you're doing the Lord's work. Uh, Project Hood is a wonderful organization that the Illinois Policy Thank Institute you. has been a supporter of uh, for yes, years. For and you continue, you continue to do the Lord's work. Pastor Brooks, thank, thank you. you so much for I being here. It. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Good. That was a lot of fun. And if you like this episode, share it with your friends and subscribe so that you don't miss out on the next one. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Stay and Fight.